talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. This is Hamilton Today. It is a Tuesday afternoon. Scott Radley sitting in for the vacationing Scott Thompson this week. We have, well, I say it every day, but every day, Will, our content guy, outdoes himself. We have a jam-packed, absolutely the sausages-filled show today. You could not squeeze another topic in today, and there is going to be something. You're going to be interested in something, hopefully everything. But over the next three hours, let me tell you what's coming up on the show today because it is um, it is very full. You like wine? Are you a wine drinker? You know, we should probably just have wine tastings on the show. That would that would really work. We can't do that today. But we are going to be talking about Niagara Region vineyards. Um, these are these are tough days. The weather and what we've been through. Not COVID. They don't care about COVID. Uh, not that I know of. Maybe we'll find out. I don't think that's it though. But the unpredictable weather we've been having is really creating some challenges for wine country. What does this mean for the product that's going to come out this later this year? Is it going to be more expensive? Is it going to be better? I don't know. We're going to find out, though. That's coming up. Uh, We're going to be chatting about the city of Hamilton's value, or at least the value of construction. We have hit a new mark way earlier in the year than we usually do, a billion dollars in construction permits already this year. That is far ahead of where we usually are. What is driving this interest in this city? Speaking of interest in the city, Niagara Falls, uh, everyone's always interested in coming to Niagara Falls, especially if they're coming up from the States or if you have friends who are visiting here, you take them down there. Uh, Not great days for Niagara Falls right now. And the reason is it's so difficult to get across the border. And even if you can do it, there are many others who are finding it a giant pain. The mayor of Niagara Falls, not happy. This This is an ongoing story, but Jim Diodati and other mayors who have who are in charge of border cities, not happy with the Canadian government and especially the Arrive Can app. Have you used the Arrive Can app? Have you you tried to cross the border with it? I mean, if you are a person of a certain age who is well-versed in technology, has a up-to-date smartphone, lots of data that you can call into, it's, you know, you can do it. If you're someone who is not as adept on technology, I got to tell you, uh, you you may not get into the country. It is, it is a, not an easy thing for those who are not comfortable with technology. We're going to be talking about that as the show goes on. Uh, here's one that um, I want to hear from you on this one later next hour. The city of Toronto is proposing a bylaw that would require cat owners to have their cats out on a leash anytime they're let loose in the community. Should we be doing that in Hamilton? Should there be only cats in public that are on a leash? If you own a cat, should you have to walk your cat like you walk your dog? Are we soon going to have off-leash cat parks? You'll, you'll, you'll never see that cat again. <laughs> you'll take your cat off the leash and shing, that thing's gone. Um, that's one way to get rid of a cat, I suppose. But is should cats be on leashes in the city? We will go to the phones and hear whether you think we should be doing that or that's just a giant money grab from the city to say, oh, well, here's another way to ticket someone or license something or whatever else. Speaking of money, most Canadians now believe we are in a recession. Of course, we've also got interest rates going up even further, which is going to make it probably feel a little squeezier. But are we in a recession? And even if we're not, is the perception of a recession problematic? We'll, we'll talk about that one. Immigrants. 
Doug Ford would like to bring more immigrants into Ontario to help fill the vacant jobs. That sounds like a reasonable plan, doesn't it? If people from here don't want to fill the positions, if we can't find people to fill jobs, let's invite other people to come in who do want to do the work, who do want to come here. That sounds like a a pretty smart plan. Not like we're saying people who have lived here all their life can't get jobs. They've Many of them have said, I don't want those jobs. Well, we got to have someone to do them. Sounds like a smart plan. Of course, there's challenges with everything. What would be the challenges with vastly increasing the number of immigrants who would be coming to this province? We'll talk about that one. Uh, this is a really tough one. In the five o'clock hour, I really hope you're going to be here. There's a story that was uh, that was written from a woman in Toronto who has had long COVID. So she is fatigued a lot of the time and believes she can't get a good job. So the story goes. Uh, she has begun the process of moving towards physician-assisted suicide. Which, I don't know where you're coming from on the whole doctor-assisted suicide thing, but this seems to be a gross perversion of what this was intended for, does it not? I mean, this was originally supposed to be for people who were on death's door or moving there very quickly. And now we have people who are, their lives just aren't very good, and they're saying, you know what, I, I'm going to get a doctor to help myself die. That, that, that seems like we have moved way past what this was intended for, but we'll be talking about that one at five o'clock. Uh, we have more COVID stuff coming up because there's new waves and new variants and all kinds of exciting new COVID things. And free agency in the NHL begins tomorrow. You've already heard what the Leafs did with their goalie, I assume. We'll be talking about that as well. Uh, lots of other stuff to get to. I want you to go uh, cast your ballot on our Twitter poll today. Do you think Rogers' nationwide outage will open the door to more competition in Canada's telecommunications sector? Yes or no? Yesterday's question was, were you impacted by the nationwide Rogers outage? Yes, 69%. No, 31%. So do you think that that outage is going to open the door to more competition? Will this allow more telecommunications companies to stake a claim and, uh, and find a spot in this country? Yes or no? Go to Twitter, go to 900CHML, cast your vote there. Lots to get to. Time for all the wine drinkers in the audience to perk up. Maybe fill up the glass, top it up a little bit, but perk up because this is uh, this is wine talking time here on the show. Specifically, local wine, Niagara wine. Niagara Vineyards um, suffered some damage over the winter. Apparently quite severe damage from the winter. But then this summer, I am told, and we're going to find out in just a second, has been pretty darn good for growing grapes. So has it all balanced out or what are we expecting from the wine that will be produced this year? Debbie Inglis is director of Brock's Cool Climate Enology and Viticulture Institute and the professor of biological sciences there. Uh, she joins us now. Debbie, thank you for this today. I really appreciate it. Hi, Scott. Great to be with you this afternoon. First of all, I had to look up how you pronounce enology. There's a word, you learn a new word every day. I don't even know what that word means. It means wine science. And uh, just pretend that the O at the front isn't there. It's actually a, a symbol. Um, it's from a French version of enology. Okay. So, uh, yeah. That, you learn that something new every day. So there you go. All right. So we, we've got this story that the vineyard suffered some damage over the winter and presumably some significant damage. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, you know, if you drive around the vineyards this year in Niagara, sadly, you're going to see, uh, you know, some blocks where the vines do not look good. There's not a lot of growth there. Um, you know, just not the, the picturesque scene that uh, uh, 
um, maybe many are familiar to see, but other vineyard blocks look great. So it's it's spotty around the region, but there is some significant damage this year. I'm trying to recall now, you know what, we're in the middle of one of the most beautiful days of the summer. I, it, it's, it's, yes. I loathe to think of the horrible days of February and January, but <laughs> what, what was it about this past winter that was so unusually bad? Yeah, it, and it wasn't just about the winter. It was what the vines were set up for just prior to entering the winter. So last season was an extended season. Um, you know, the grapes had to hang on the vine a lot longer to reach ripeness. It was wet at the end of the season. So the vines just didn't get prepared as well physiologically for the cold winter months. And then December was fairly mild. And this is, you know, fairly typical anymore of what we see with climate change. Um, so the, the vines weren't needing to get down to what we call their cold maximum cold hardiness level. Um, you know, until all of a sudden January popped up and we had some really, really cold temperatures uh, throughout the month of January and then, you know, further into February. And grapevines can only tolerate temperatures that are around minus 23 degrees Celsius for, for the wine grapes, the high quality Vitis vinifera grapes. So the Chardonnays, the Pinot Noirs, the Merlots, the Sauvignon Blancs. And certain varieties are, are a little more sensitive to that cold temperature, uh, like Merlot and Sauvignon Blanc. And other varieties like Riesling and Cap Franc tend to have a little more tolerance to those cold temperatures. But, you know, regardless, when those temperatures drop below minus 23, and we had some areas that were minus 25 and even colder, there's only so much that we can mitigate with some of the technologies that we have, like wind machines, which will bring warm air down from above and mix it with the cold air and raise that temperature up a few degrees. But, um, you know, when the temperatures plummet too low, uh, that's even too much for the machines to, to help out with. So that would, so there's two things here. Now, I've also heard that this summer has been pretty good for growing grapes. So there's something as an offshoot on this. But if we have fewer areas, that, like a bunch of areas that have been harmed, presumably not growing or not growing up to their full amount, Will we expect that, A, the cost of wine, Niagara wine, is going to be higher in a lot of cases at, from this season? I, d I don't think we're going to see that, um, uh, you know, translate through, but there's going to be fewer grapes. Um, but, you know, the and fewer grapes because although, you know, some vines are still fine, uh, you know, we within a grape um, a bud, there's actually three buds within that bud. And the first one is the primary bud that produces all the fruit. And if that one's killed, there's still a secondary bud that produces less fruit, um, but will help the vine grow. And if that one's also killed, there's still a tertiary bud that will just produce leaves and at least keep the vine alive. So although there's a lot of um, uh, vines that are still looking like they're doing okay because they've got tertiary uh, growth, happening there's maybe just not any fruit in there so the hmm. the fruit will be lower this year in terms of quantity but as you pointed out it's been a fantastic season so far so um you know the fruit that is there is going to ripen hopefully this will continue and it'll ripen fully and we'll get some really wonderful fruit production very high quality this year um 
But, uh, you know, the industry doesn't, um, you know, they can't be jacking up prices and lowering prices on a, on a vintage to vintage variation. So I don't think we'll see that translated to, to changes right. for the consumer. All right. As you describe it, all I can think of is it sounds like the, the grape are parachutes. You know, if the first one, if, you, if the first cord doesn't pull, then you pull the second <laughs> one and there's a grape that's going to pop out. And if you're still not, well, I don't know what you do here. But uh, but this is a, this is a um, when you talk about if we had not had the damage then, yeah. it sounds like this summer would have been one of the really great summers in recent years for production. Yeah, it's it's a little bit dry right now. And, um, you know, the grapes like that kind of hot, dry weather. For the vines right now, because they're, you know, some are still a little bit stressed from that winter damage. If we don't get some rain soon, you know, we might see some further damage to the vines because they're they're already hurting a little bit. But, um, you know, we just had some great rain yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the vines are really resilient. Uh, you know, and I, I will say our industry, our growers are very resilient. You know, they've been dealing with these sorts of, of stressors and, and um, impacts from climate change for a number of years now. And, uh, you know, they're, they're managing these sorts of um, setbacks, you know, quite well. The, are the there any, we got we have to run, we have to run, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but just very quickly, are there any Niagara grapes that do better with drier conditions or do they all still need the, the wet? Oh, no, you know, um, you know, some of our red varieties like our, our Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon, they'll ripen much better in, in this kind of warmer, dry weather this year. So watch out for those this year. Mm. It'll be a good vintage. It is. Yeah. Well, as I say, time to top up the uh, top up the glass. We can, you know, we're just starting the show here. So you've got lots of time. And now that we've talked wine right off the top, well, why not do that? Uh, Debbie Inglis, director of Brock's Cool Climate Enology and Viticulture Institute. Very much appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Thank you. There you go. See, we start with wine and we'll see where we go to from here. Maybe we'll get into some beer later or something. I don't know. Just to keep, you know, to keep everyone parched. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We surpassed $1 billion worth of construction since the beginning of the year. It's the fastest we've ever reached the billion dollar mark. That, that, that would seem to be good news, right? Let me bring in Norm Schlehan. He is the Director of Economic Development for the City of Hamilton. And interestingly, this happens on his watch in his, really, his first full year doing this. So this is entirely your doing, correct, Norm? Well, I, I, I wish I could take the credit for that, Scott. But I just want to correct <laughs> you there. Actually, actually, I've been on the job for almost two and a half years now in this capacity. Is that so right? It's, uh, it's, okay, it's gone that well, quickly. Yes. My first, uh, it has gone. My first, week, my first week on the job was actually the week before COVID hit, so... Oh, that's uh, well. So I've been around okay, for a so we while. can. Yeah. We'll we'll credit you for this development. And we'll blame you for COVID, and it's a wash. Then, and uh, <laughs> I can't do, believe it's been do. two and a half years. <laughs> uh, Norm, why has this happened? Then, so is this? We mentioned COVID. Let me back up. Is this a COVID-related thing? Was there a lot of stuff that was put on hold, and when COVID relented, all of these projects started, or is there some different reason why we're doing so well? You know, I, Scott, it's a really good question. You know, if you take a look at the building permit activity from 2017 to about 2020. Uh, it was averaging at around 1.4 billion uh, a year. And then in 2021, so last year, it soared to 2.1 billion. And uh, last year, uh, a lot of those numbers were, uh, there were projects, some very large projects uh, in, in those numbers last year. Uh, uh, the Amazon facility up by the airport, you're probably familiar with almost a million square right. feet. Uh, uh, drove a lot of those from it's a very very expensive building as well as the L3 Harris uh, uh, head office uh, up in Waterdown. 
And you know what? So we thought that uh, you know those large permits, you know, you know two, the, the two billion dollar mark last year would have been, oh, you know what? That was a great year, but uh, those projects were were carrying it. And and well, this year, uh, well, our, our non-industrial numbers aren't there yet. Uh, we have a lot of not, uh, or sorry, pardon me, non-residential numbers aren't quite there yet. Um, we do have a lot of uh, those projects uh, toward the end of this year that we feel will be coming on stream. The residentials really picked up. So residentials, a lot of the tower tower projects in the downtown core. So a lot of I think a lot of these projects that have been in, in the queue for a while are, are just the time is, is coming to fruition. Uh, and, and you're seeing these happen, I'm not going to say all at once, but, uh, you know, we went from $1.4 billion in 2020 to $2.1 billion last year. And, and right now we're on pace to uh, hopefully equal what we had uh, in 2021. I was going to ask you about residential. Residential is a really interesting one in the city, obviously, uh, with all the discussion at City Council about the urban boundary expansion or non-expansion. I was wondering if that was part of this, that builders now that had land and now realize there's a demand for this and there won't be much more availability if they are rushing to get these built now. Well, and, and you know what, I'm I not sure how big of a factor that is in terms of getting them right built right now, stuff, because a lot of these projects, they take many years to come to fruition, right? So uh, I'm sure the, a lot of those are, are, are in the pipe already. Uh, but I think what's driving it a lot, like I said, a lot of those larger scale, uh, in, and there's, there are a lot of, uh, I don't want to call them infill developments, uh, but projects that are, you know, higher density developments that are, that are taking place there. You know, you've got you've got projects which haven't been announced yet, but uh, like, or sorry, shouldn't be haven't been announced, but the uh, stuff like Eastgate Square, stuff that we're talking about at Lime Ridge Mall in terms of more residential go, going in there. So you're seeing a lot of activity along those lines as well, Scott. That uh, I think will bode well for us, and especially uh, in, in the coming years as well. Period, period developments down uh, by the water. So I think you'll be seeing a lot of residential in those areas as well. Norm, I would think that any kind of building is good. But I'm wondering if this is the kind, if what we're seeing is the kind that we really want, because obviously every time we do this, ideally we're adding to the tax base so that the individual taxpayers don't have to pay as much and we have more people spreading it out. Is, are these the kind of projects that help with that? Is the, are these exactly the kind we want to be built in the city? Well, I mean, I, I guess it depends on which projects you're talking about, but from what, let's just talk about the, uh, the non-residential source, some of these industrial projects, uh, yeah, I would say they are. I mean, in terms of you talk about, uh, you know, you have to make sure you have the diversity and, and the, the employment mix in there as well. Uh, you want to have, you know, a number of, uh, you know, employers that are paying a decent and and, and, and living wage, uh, but as well, uh, a commercial industrial taxpayers pay, you know, four to six times what the, uh, or sorry, two to three times, pardon me, what, what the residential taxpayers pay, right? So uh, to get those in that, that actually, the, the more non-residential development you can get, that helps offset the, uh, the, the municipal tax levy for the residents, right? So that's uh, those are the ones that we're, we're really targeting on is, is trying to get those types of developments that can actually help offset uh, some of that impact on the residential levy. We are hearing, and we're going to be talking later in the show uh, about the R word, which nobody really wants to talk about, but it's we're hearing a lot about it, which is recession. Do recessions, if we were to go into one, do they have the kind of impact on the building like this that we see in other areas of the economy or... Do builders just say, you know what, we've got to build these, so we're going to keep going? Well, I, I guess it depends on, on your builder and, and, and their capacity. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, when you're talking about interest rate hikes, that affects affects everyone. So we want to make sure we're striking while the, while the iron's hot and we can get these things processed and through the system as fast as possible. Because uh, c- certainly, um, you, know, you know what, the, the R word has been floating out there. I, I don't really want to talk about it, of course. <laughs> but it, 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 is a, it is a reality, right? So we, we have to basically, you know what, uh, make 
I don't want to say big hit while the sun shines, but that's really what we have to be doing right now. How much of this, Norm, is the fact that we've been, again, for those just tuning in, that we're talking with Norm Schlehan, the Director of Economic Development, about the fact that we've hit the billion-dollar mark in construction in the city already, which is the earliest we have. How much of this um, is us going out, well, not us, you, you and your department and others in the city going out and recruiting people to come here, and how much is Hamilton just now the place that people are coming to? Yeah. So there's a really good balance to that, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, we can, the, uh, certainly we've had long time developers here that, you know, what don't need any coaxing and know where to, they know how to get their developments moving forward. Uh, I think what you've really seen the difference over the last, uh, probably the four or five years is that there's been a, a large uh, interest by uh, Toronto developers uh, or GTA developers uh, in the city that wasn't there before, especially on the non-residential side. Whereas in the past, we've been going out talking to uh, end users, and we still do talk to end users, obviously, in terms of that fit into the sector profiles that we're looking to develop our economy here, Scott. But the uh, the development interest here is now, you know, you've had developers that have bought, you know, properties like by, well, flaked by the, uh, you know, Stucco lands, uh, uh, the Panatonis, First Gulfs, uh, the end gates bought by the airport. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, these developers are, are bringing in, clients that they've, you know, basically, once they get their subdivisions up and running, uh, they, they have an established client base that, that are, are looking to come this way. So part, part of it now is trying to get these uh, industrial subdivisions approved so we can actually get these end users uh, into the city. So, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the relationships that we developed with these developers over the last uh, five to six years, especially. Well, okay. So uh, to go back then, so you've been doing this for two and a half years and the last two then have been record setting years. So again, we can, we can credit Norm Schlehan with being single-handedly driving these record setting years, correct? Well, Scott, a wise man once told me, if you want to take the credit for something, you always got to take the blame when it goes down. So I'm, not gonna <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not taking credit for anything. It's a great team effort between, you know, not people, uh, it takes two to tango. So in terms of, you know, the development community as well as the folks at City Hall, uh, to process these things at the community as well. So it's, uh, anyway, that's, uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. It is a good news story. Norm Schlehan, Director of Economic Development for the City of Hamilton. Norm, always appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Anytime. Take care, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. There is, uh, there has been a discussion going on for some time now about the ways uh, that we are able to get across the border. We coming back into Canada, but also Americans coming into this country. And it has not always been a happy discussion because it doesn't seem to be working all that well. At least the number of people would say so, uh, including my next guest, Jim Diodati is the mayor of the city of Niagara Falls who joins us now. Mr. Mayor, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Scott. I'm reading a story in the St. Catherine Standard today. The headline is border measures now extended to fall, having devastating impact on Niagara's tourism. Is devastating an overstatement or is that a fair description? No, that's a fair description. And I'll, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Typically in Niagara Falls, you know, we're the number one leisure destination in Canada. And we typically, certainly pre-pandemic, we get 14 million visitors. So we've come to rely on the visitors. In fact, 40,000 people count on tourism to feed their families in Niagara Falls. And of that 14 million, typically 50%, come from Americans spending here. So when you have problems at the border, and that happened after 9-11, it happened Mad Cow, SARS, and of course now during COVID, 
When you have problems at the border, it has a major immediate impact here in Niagara Falls because the majority of people come here, they're called the right, the rubber tire traffic. They come by car, by van, and, and it's families, and it's instantly turned off when something happens. So we do everything we can to make that free flow across the border nice and smooth. And what's happened with this Arrive Can app, and we get why we had to do it in the beginning, Scott. In the beginning, it was to keep COVID out. It was to follow the science to keep us safe. And we all agreed with it. We all supported it. Well, we're way beyond that. Science has told us it's no longer necessary. It has nothing to do with safety, including Dr. Zane Chagla from McMaster has said it's no longer useful. So what it's doing, it's choking the border. It's turning people away. And now our numbers of Americans coming are significantly reduced. And it's having a major impact on businesses who have suffered for two years, they're trying to dig out of debt. And this is a, a, this now mm. has become a man-made disaster. Are, are you pointing, and I think you are, are you pointing mostly at this ArriveCan app? Because believe me, I know, including myself, a number of people who have crossed the border and it's a giant pain in the butt. And yet those of us who are capable of figuring out the technology, even though it's a pain, you do it. But are you pointing at this as being a reason either Americans don't know or, or older people perhaps don't know how to do it? Or is this the reason why this is happening? A hundred percent. It's the, the number one reason that Americans are not coming. And it's one of the top reasons that seniors here in Canada are not crossing the border. See, I'll start with seniors. Seniors are intimidated. A lot of them have flip phones or they don't have smartphones. And I know because I have received umpteen calls emails, people stopping me. And, and this isn't just to pick on one demographic, but by and large, they're not as digitally uh, advanced. And many have said to me, I'm happy to show my passport. I'm, I'm happy to show my, my vaccination status, but I'm offended and I feel discriminated against when I'm forced to have an app on a smartphone that I can't do. And I'm told, get your grandkids to do it. And anyone who's been through it, it can be intimidating. And I can tell you, I know my father could not do it. And, and that's on our side of the border. Then with Americans crossing, so you got a family up from Erie, Pennsylvania. They're not paying attention to what's happening in Ottawa. They show up with their passports. They're vaccinated. They get to the border and they have not downloaded the Arrive Can app. Well, they don't have roaming. They don't have access to Wi-Fi. There's a lineup behind them. They're told there could be quarantining measures, there could be random testing, there could be fines, and they get really nervous, they get scared, turned away, and they tell everybody, and you know, an unsatisfied customer will tell everybody, and that's exactly what's happening. So when they say they have high compliance, compliance at the border, it's very misleading. You just have to listen to CBSA, and they'll tell you, yeah, hire after we help them fill out the form, but most Americans have opted to not even come to the border because of the negative word that's out there and word of mouth is very strong and it's been very negative at the borders. You have been uh, preaching this sermon for a, a while now. We've had you on the show talking about this a month or two ago and it's not new. And I know that you've been, well, screaming at Ottawa for lack of a better term. It doesn't sound like anyone's listening to you though. No. And I've spoken with our federal tourism minister, federal public safety minister. I've spoken with our MPs. I can tell you, you know, and I've even suggested to them, I said, listen, since the majority of travelers use land border crossing versus airports, and we know airports are an absolute disaster as well right now, it's been a lot of bad decisions made and poor planning. I said, then why don't you just at least remove the ArriveCan app, 
for cross-border, for anyone driving across the border to at least make things okay for all of us border towns that are trying to survive. Why don't you, and they thought, the federal ministers thought that was a fair compromise, but they all made it quite clear. The decision comes right from the top. But I can tell you, Scott, we've got unified opinion on this, whether you're talking about the chambers of commerce, the duty freeze, the hotel association, travel and trade, the border city mayors, MPs, opposition MPs, even senators are weighing in. And of course, uh, on the U.S. side, we've got uh, politicians actively engaged in trying to get this overturned. We all feel the same way. This is not making anyone safer. It's not about safety. All it's doing, it's adding layers of red tape. It's, it's making things more complicated at the border, and it's killing tourism. And the sad thing is we can do something about it, but it feels like it's falling on deaf ears when the federal government puts another $25 million into a can and extending it. And it seems to me someone's in love with this app. It's really unfortunate. I feel like it's the old uh, VHS Betamax thing <laughs> where somebody is really sold on the idea that, you know, that the Betamax is going to be around. And unfortunately, it's causing problems. Well, I don't want to be too, too cynical, but I do know that a lot of our federal politicians, when they travel, will travel on government planes or whatever else and don't have to do the airport thing and don't have to do the border thing. And I, I always wonder if the people making the decisions had to do the same stuff that the people had to do, if this might be cleared up quicker. Well, it's funny you say that, Scott. So I invited the ministers. I said, listen, rather than listening to whoever's feeding you the information in Ottawa, why don't you come to the border, come to the front lines the way you would in a real business and go meet your customers and find out what's really going on on the front lines. And we're on the front lines and I'll take you and I'll show you. We'll talk to CBSA people who are dealing every day with thousands of people. We'll talk to the border city mayors. We'll talk to the businesses and find out what's really going on. It seems they're being fed uh, some real bad information and we want to show them what's really going on. So right now, I feel like we're, we're not getting listened to, we're being ignored, and it's really, really frustrating because a lot of people's livelihoods depend on them making good decisions, and here we are, we're waiting, and I feel a little bit helpless right now. Uh, no doubt. Uh, Jim Diodotti, Mayor of Niagara Falls, really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Thank you. The R word, the dangerous, scary R word recession that a lot of people are talking about now. Well... That R word is probably going to get a lot more play in the next little while because tomorrow we are expecting that the interest rate in this country, the Bank of Canada is going to hike its interest rate by three quarters of a point. That is a big, big hike. And there are those who say, if you do this, you may be able to contain inflation, but you may spark a recession. It's uh, These are tricky economic decisions that are being made and so if we're going to talk about tricky economic decisions, there's only one person we turn to because uh, he is able to turn tricky economic stuff into understandable economic stuff. That, of course, Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Sir, how are you today? Fine, thanks. Another dangerous R word, Ryder. Well, that, that too. Yeah. And Radley, I mean, look, they're, they're all over yeah. the place. It's... Um, so uh, I think most people, when we look at what's happening with inflation right now, I think most people understand that this is too much demand, not enough supply, prices are going up, too much money in the economy. Let's increase the cost it's going to be to borrow a little bit, and that's going to cool things down. Right. Is this going to work? Because this is a, I mean, a three quarters of a point is a big jump. Is this going to have a good effect? 
Yeah, so I can make an argument for two different increases tomorrow, one of a half a percent and one of three quarters of a percent. The half a percent increase is because in just the last couple of weeks, we've seen a dramatic decline in the world price for oil, and that's translated into a reduced price for gasoline. Now, I'm, I understand all of your listeners will say, well, it's still too high. Yes, yes, I understand. But look, it came down 15 percent. That's quite a movement. And so it appears, it appears that in July, inflation is beginning to break up a bit. Therefore, do you need to really stomp on the brakes? Therefore, I could see them saying, we're just going to do a half a point for now. We'll monitor it. We, we set it again just after Labor Day. We'll see what that does. On the other hand, the Americans raised their rate three quarters of a percent. I guarantee you when we get June's inflation data, which we'll probably get in about 10 days, um, I don't think June's will have gone down from 7.7%. In fact, I won't be shocked if it got into the 8% range. And so to the public at large, you know, gosh, you really need to do something about it. And so to try to lay those fears, three quarters of a percent. The one thing I know for certain is it's going up. And maybe just one other quick note. Today, the Bank of Canada rate stands at one and a half percent. Before COVID in January 2020, uh, it was one and three quarters percent. So if, for instance, they took it to a half percent, take it fully to 2%, they're basically back to where they were pre-COVID, which, again, I understand if you borrowed money, oh, you don't like seeing it go in that direction. But this, this is not an outrageous amount in total. It's more like we've had a sale for the last couple of years rather than we're really grinding people to the gears at this point. Yeah, and, and I mean, could you see a possibility that this doesn't do enough? I mean, is this where this ends or is there a realistic possibility that we go up by three quarters of a percent and three months from now, five months from now, we're talking about this again? Yeah. Well, again, the problem here is nobody knows for sure. There's so many forces at play that I cannot control. I didn't see uh, Prime Minister Abe being assassinated last week. I didn't think world oil prices were going to drop the way they did. They actually fell below $100 a barrel, and then they climbed back up to $104 a barrel. Tell me what the price of oil is going to be even a month from now. And this is why it's so hard to predict. And this is also why the Bank of Canada has this, this uh, fine line to walk. On one hand, they want to reduce the economic supply of money. They want to try to cool the economy a bit, but they don't want to make it frozen. Now, again, the, the target here is growth of between 1% and 3% a year, 1% and 3%. When you have inflation at 7.7% or maybe even 8%, clearly the economy is growing like gangbusters. So we just want to cool that down, but we don't want it to shrink. And so to a point you had made at the start of our conversation, are we in a recession? Absolutely not. We are not in a recession today because our economy is growing. A recession is easily defined as two consecutive quarters where our economy shrinks. The first quarter this year, our economy grew at around 3.1%. Now we don't have the data for the second quarter, which ended on June 30th. We'll have that data by the end of August, but I'm pretty sure the second quarter is going to show growth. So the earliest, the earliest we could fall into a recession is January of 2023. To the extent people have been running models, they think the earliest we might see a recession is the second and third quarters of 2023, so nearly a whole year from now. But then I would counter, the people at the Bank of Canada are not crazy people. If 
they and they monitor this more closely than you and I can, if they sense that the economy is really, really starting to cool down, they can do two things. One is they can stop increasing interest rates, or they could even reverse that and let money be a little cheaper again and put a little stimulus back into it. So they're going to watch this really, really closely. Nobody wants the R word. Okay, so uh, everything you've just said uh, makes good sense. However, when you say we're not in a recession and we couldn't really be in one technically until the start of the new year, Leger just did a poll and 59% of Canadians believe we are currently in a recession. So we're not, and yet there is widespread belief that we are. Does the psychology of believing that we are have an impact on the economy? Yeah, absolutely. This is the chicken little effect. If we all believe the sky is falling, the sky is going to fall. The data is even worse in the United States. 68% of Americans think they're in a recession and they're not. Now, why do people feel this way? You've had two years of COVID, so you're exhausted from all of that. And then you get this mixed economic news, some of it from the past, some of it at the moment. So you might remember on Friday, we had our unemployment data for Canada. Canada has the lowest unemployment in Canadian history. I'm gonna say that again. We have the lowest unemployment in Canadian history. That is the sign of an economy chugging along at full capacity. Now, will it be that way six months from now? I don't know. I don't know what Vladimir Putin's gonna do tomorrow in Ukraine, fire off a, a nuclear weapon at some point and all bets are off. But we live in this challenging time. And I think what people have felt, certainly after two years of COVID is, I'm just going to assume the worst. I'm just going to assume that you know the sky is falling and everything is caving in and it's kind of every person for themselves as they go forward. And that's a shame of it because nobody wants you to do that. We still want you to go have a cup of coffee at your favorite place, go to your favorite restaurant, buy a new dress or a new pair of slacks or something like that. We don't want you to stop doing that. We do want you, we do want you to think carefully about maybe buying a new house or maybe buying a new car. But if you need a new car, buy a new car. We just want to calm the market a bit. And uh, the fear is if everyone feels we're in a recession, we'll create one where there's no need for one. That is Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Uh, Always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Glad to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. One of the things that Marvin pointed out is that we have essentially full employment or very close to it. We have record low unemployment right now in this country. And yet, as you have surely heard for weeks now and months, business after business after business is struggling to find workers. Anyone who we were talking about this the other day, anyone who's had to fly out of Pearson Airport. Now they say it's not all the federal rules. It's that Air Canada and Pearson Airport don't have enough staff. They haven't been able to find enough to bring them back. So they have to cancel flights now. You're hearing this all over the place. We don't have enough people to fill the jobs we need filled. I know you've heard this, but it seems as though, as I say, close to full employment. So we have to find new people, either people who have eliminated themselves from the workforce, bring them back in or another way. Well, what if the answer to that was what Premier Doug Ford suggested the other day, which was to 
address labor shortages across the province by bringing in more immigrants who are happy to come here and fill those jobs and work and 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 become very productive members of our society. I want to bring in Claudio Ruiz Pilarte, who's the executive director of Hamilton's Immigrants Working Center. Uh, Claudio, thank you for this today. Oh, thank you for having me. This, to me, if we're short of people who are willing or able or even around to do work, and we have people who are eager to come here and work and do those jobs, boy, this seems like it's a really good idea, is it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, definitely. Uh, there. I mean, but before, though, I think there are some uh, changes that need to that need to happen in uh, related to how immigration is managed um, by, by Canada. Okay. Like what, give me what, what would be something that we need to do differently or better? I'm assuming to make this work if it was to be done. Yeah. I th- well, I think I, I, well, I, I applaud uh, the government of, of Ontario's, um, a decision to pursue this because I, I do think that it is, it, it makes sense really. I mean, when you think about the Canadian economy, it's a very complex economy. Every, the needs of every province is different. So it makes no sense in a way to have a, a policy that is enforced or mandated by the federal government. It makes more sense to have actually provincial, the provinces actually manage the, that aspect of immigration. I mean, and, and having said this, I think it's quite urgent to actually move on and do this because presumably right now, based on all the economic indicators and you know, all the economic news that have, have been coming out, every developed nation in the world is going through the same issue, which means that we have to get ahead of the curve and start competing with other countries for talent abroad. So we need to make sure that we have a very good structure that will allow the government to make quick decisions and to be very nimble in the way that they actually uh, make uh, carry out the process. And I think when it comes to that, it makes more sense to give this policy to the to their provinces because they they are much more in touch with what the economic needs of the of their province of the provinces uh, as opposed to the federal government and it makes sense also to to give those the ability to the provinces to be more nimble and effective in the way that they actually carry this policy well and claudio one thing and look we've all heard this before we've heard people in the past say look we we don't want to have uh, there are people who are here and we don't want them to lose opportunities, right? So people who are who have been living in this country for years, we don't want them squeezed out, whether that's fair or not. This is not that at all. This is this is a case where we have lots of people have opportunities here. The jobs can't be filled. We're not we're not excluding anybody here. We're we can't fill these jobs. We have to find someone who will do it. And there's lots of people seemingly who are eager to come and do that. This seems like a win-win. Oh, absolutely, and even and even when it comes to the sort of the, the, that concern that some people may have, I mean, any any reputable economic uh, economist um, will tell you that the jury is still out on what on whether on in the short term. This is the key word. If in the short term, uh, influx of immigrants uh, lower or in, or maintain wages, that's still out. When, but however, where there there's there is. Uh, unanimous consent is on the long-term projections. On the long-term projections, uh, immigration is good for a country, and because for many factors, I mean, uh, immigrants not only contribute to the economy, but a lot of immigrants then start opening businesses, which creates firm, you know, more jobs uh, within the economy. So, 
um, I think that it's, it's good for people to know that in the long term, uh, immigrants do not uh, depress the wages of, of, uh, of people who are already in the country. Uh, and as I said, short term, the jury's still out. Nobody, no, no reputable economists can argue for or against it. Um, so, but I think this, when it comes to immigration, it, it's, it's a long, it's a long, mm. it's a long-term plan. It, it's not a short-term it, plan. It does. It, it certainly does seem to solve a problem that we're facing right now. The one concern, I guess, that would be an obvious one is I just read something the other day. I have no idea where I read it, but it was about many of the Ukrainian immigrants who had come here as a result of the war, uh, talking about, you know, it, it's not easy. It's, we've come here and finding work and paying the bills and finding housing and all these kinds of things, it's really more difficult than we thought it would be, was what the story was saying. Is this, a, is this something that if you bring all kinds of people in from all over the world without the um, platform to support them and just say, find a job and work, that we're creating new problems? Uh, not necessarily. I think the, the Ukrainian the situation with the Ukrainian refugees it's a little bit unique because actually there there is no no uh, in recent memory there is no case of where the government has actually done this. I mean, in, in, I mean, I want to make sure that I, that I don't sound very critical on this point, but I do. You know, one has to admit the fact that when it comes to the the the, the the situation with the Ukrainian immigrants, in my opinion, it, it's it's been a situation where the actions to actually um, facilitate this migration flow has been piecemeal. You know, it seems that every two three weeks, the government has the federal government has introduced new changes to okay, new new resources. So, but it's you know this in a way. And, and, and I understand there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of politics around these type of things, and but I think having a plan before actually does wonders for making sure. And, and that that's they, the key word. That's the key word, right, Claudio? Plan. Yeah. You just as exactly. long as you plan for this, it can work really exactly. well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. I wish we had a lot more time to talk about this. It's a, it's a really interesting topic. And as I say, it's, it seems like it's something that would solve problems for us, whether new ones might be created. I don't know, but it seems like if we can't find people and we're fully employed almost, this, this seems like it's an obvious one. Mm. Claudio, oh, and, and if I might just add, just one Please, yes. note, I mean, when, when you, when we think about it, I, mean, I think, I think we need to look at this issue with, with a lot of optimism, you know, throughout for for uh, over 150 years now, we have been engaged in this wonderful pro project that we call Canada. And you know what? When you look at the, the track record that Canada has, its history with, with immigrants, sure, obviously, every country has some dark episodes in it. Obviously, nobody's going to deny though, that. But overall, when you compare it to any other country, I think, you know, we've done a pretty good job. And I think we just need to keep focus on that and, and making sure that we, you know, that we look at people who are coming into the country as people who are going to help all of us. As Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very difficult. It, it's very difficult to argue that when you look around, even through Hamilton and you see how many people came from the old country and they came here right. and they've been wild successes and their families have done well. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's uh, your, your point is absolutely right. Uh, Claudio Ruiz part. Uh, let me start that again. Claudio Ruiz Pilarte, executive director of Hamilton's immigrants working center. Thank you for the time today. Oh, thank you for uh, for having me, and and um, and thank you to all the listeners.
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Six years ago in this country, uh, a law was passed allowing for medical assistance in dying, physician-assisted suicide. And there were plenty of people, there are plenty of people who support that idea. However, what has happened in the six years since? And if you recall, once upon a time, this was exclusively the domain of those who were on their way to death. They had a terminal illness. They didn't want to wait around for the suffering, but they were clearly on a path towards death. And that was how this worked. Well, then a few years ago, it changed to be if you have a chronic condition. And now we're moving to, well, mental health issues would allow you to have physician-assisted suicide. Well, we go a step further now. There's a story that I want to read three paragraphs from this story from CTV. Contracting COVID-19 radically changed Tracy Thompson's life. It's been more than two years since the initial infection, but her symptoms still dictate her days, leaving her with fatigue, robbing her of energy and her ability to work. A Thompson, a Toronto resident in her 50s, says the enduring illness and lack of substantive financial support has led her to begin the process of applying for medical assistance in dying. A procedure became legal in Canada in 2016. Quote, it is exclusively a financial consideration. That's her quote. She is now applying to end her life under our laws as a financial decision. This seems to me anyway, like just a the most gross and horrible perversion of what this law was supposed to be. This is, this, you can agree, you can disagree. This seems to me to be entirely a horrendous use of this, but it's legal now. Dr. Sonugind is a professor in the uh, University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine, co-director of the Adult Psychiatry and Health Systems Academic Division of the Department of Psychiatry. He's involved in many other things. He joins me now. Uh, doctor, thank you for your time today. really appreciate it. Oh, hi, Mr. Radley, and thank you for having me on. appreciate that as well. Uh, you wrote a piece in the National Observer the other day about this topic and you use the line, we have not witnessed a slippery slope in Canada. We have fallen off a cliff. It, it seems like that if we've gone from, I'm dying of cancer, I don't want to live through the horrible part of that, to I now have financial problems. Please let me kill myself with the help of a doctor. That's, that's a mile, that's miles away from where we started. You're absolutely right. And I have to say that it deeply saddens me that we're at this point. Um, unfortunately, it's something that was entirely predictable, seeing how the made laws have expanded so rapidly in Canada, and um, they've expanded faster than any place on the planet, and that is literally true. So and, we now, ha and look, some people are going to say, look, it's it, you can do what you want with your body, with your life. If you want to do this, that should be your choice. And and like that, you, that opinion, you're entitled to have that opinion. I'm not sure though, that as a country, morally, we want to be in the position where we're saying, if you're having financial problems, it's, we want to encourage you that it's okay to kill yourself. That, that, it just, it seems like morally, it, it's such a dicey area to be. And, you know, I should point out that uh, I actually am not somebody who opposes MAID or medical assistance in dying. I'm not a conscientious objector. I supported the laws when they were introduced for end-of-life suffering. 
But keep in mind that when they were introduced in 2016, in response to the Supreme Court case, the Supreme Court of Canada case, they were brought in for conditions when death was foreseeable. And we've gone so far beyond that, that that's why I'm saying we haven't had a slippery slope. We have fallen off a cliff because last year, the government expanded, made, so that it applied to non-dying disabled who could have decades left to live. Next year, they are planning on expanding it to those who are suffering solely from mental illness. And there are expansionists who continue to want even further expansion to euthanasia for children. And when we start seeing these stories emerge in the media about people whose suffering is fueled by poverty, and that is why they're seeking it, and they happen to have potentially some medical conditions, I don't think that's what most Canadians signed up for in terms of thinking what we were going to give compassionate, assisted dying for. Well, and when you say that, you know, there are those who want to push it to include even children, I know some people will say, come on, that you're, you're going too far. That's not going to happen. Look, I, I will bet all the money that I have that there are this, many of the same people would never have predicted when this first started that we'd be even where we are today. This is far faster and far further than we expected. The idea that we would somehow stop all of a sudden and children at some point won't be allowed to me seems ludicrous at this point. You know, when this first came in, people were saying that those who are cautioning about a slippery slope were crying wolf, that there would not be a slippery slope. They were giving assurances that we'd have standards for being able to check, check when medical conditions wouldn't get better, including mental illness. So standards for what's called irremediability, when the condition won't improve. The panel, federal panel, just reported on that uh, less than a month ago or so. And they essentially issued no standards. They said that it's not possible to determine um, the number or types of treatment or for how long or what kinds of treatments somebody should have before providing death or mental illness. We were assured that we'd be able to separate suicidality from requests for MAID. And the same federal panel is now actually openly acknowledging And this is a quote, society is making an ethical choice, not a medical choice, an ethical choice to enable certain people to receive MAID on a case-by-case basis, regardless of whether MAID and suicide are considered to be distinct or not. And we were assured that people who were more marginalized and vulnerable would not be more at risk. And in fact, what we're seeing is that those people precisely are at risk. And so what we're finding is that there are two groups that seek made, one group might well be doing it for increased autonomy and having a dignified death. That's what it's been sold to Canadians as. But what we are also doing is concurrently, at the same time, sacrificing others who suffer from sexism, ageism, any sort of ism you want, to premature and avoidable deaths for life suffering. And that's what's leading to the headline that you are reading today, people applying for poverty. I just don't know how we shove this back into the bottle because it seems impossible now. It seems once we've reached this point that the only outcome is to take this to the nth degree and say, well, eventually it's going to be anybody for any reason at any time who wants to end their life. We're 
here for you, which, which again, seems to be, uh, for me anyway, I wouldn't even say ethically questionable, ethically troubling severely that that would be the case. But I don't know how you undo this and don't go there. So a couple of things. One is, let's keep in mind that this has not been tested in the Supreme Court. When the um, Quebec judge, it was a single Quebec judge, ruled that the reasonably foreseeable death safeguard was overly restrictive, the government decided not to appeal that. So this expansion is not something that has ever been tested in the Supreme Court. The other thing is that in many ways, these laws evolved and emerged under the cover of COVID. People were not paying attention. As people are finding out what these laws now entail and what they're actually leading to, frankly, many people are absolutely shocked. And, you know, we do know that policymakers listen to public opinion. I personally think that there needs to be a lot of education for people to realize what's really going up on and make up their own informed minds. I'm confident that if people really realized what is happening, they would not support this. At the same time, we do need to make sure that there isn't misinformation going around. You know, it's, it's funny that the headline you read with somebody literally saying they are seeking it because of poverty, you also have lobby groups saying that, oh, that isn't happening. One, one of the myths that's right now posted on the Dying with Dignity Canada site is labeling it as a myth that vulnerable populations can be eligible for MAID if they're suffering from inadequate social supports, including housing. And they go on to say no one can receive MAID on the basis of inadequate housing, disability supports, or home care. You know, obviously no one's going to list as a MAID assessor or provider poverty as the reason for MAID. Sure. That is what's fueling, what's fueling many of these re- um, requests from marginalized it- populations. It's a, uh, it's to me, it's a very troubling discussion, and I wish we had a lot more time. But it's, uh, it, I, I read this, and it just, it saddens me because it just, it seems so, such a perversion of where this thing was supposed to be. Um, Dr. Sanu Gind, I always appreciate the time. Thank you for doing this today. Thank you very much, Mr. Radley. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We are now, we're told, in the BA dot five wave or ba5 wave with covid i mean look it's those of us who are not virologists and really who among us are or scientists this is all beginning to become complex and names that we don't really keep up with and difficult to follow but we're in the ba5 wave we're now hearing about another omicron variant called ba275 again uh this is all complex but the one thing that is very clear is we're not hearing anybody say we're in the ba oh they're done wave it's coming it's still coming in all different looks and forms apparently we are not getting rid of covid anytime soon i want to bring in thomas tenkate professor at the school of occupational and public health with toronto metropolitan university joins us now thank you for the time today really appreciate it uh thanks for having me scott great to be with you this is, as I say, unless you're a virologist or a doctor or someone just trying to keep track of which version of this is now upon us, boy, it becomes really difficult except to say it's still here and there's still some form of it always around. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, uh, you know, I suppose the way to think about it is that the virus keeps wanting to mutate to be able to 
sort of to live and to keep spreading within the community. And so these these numbers that you're hearing, the the BA5 and and the the like, are really just a way that we categorize the different versions that are, are becoming more dominant. And so and they they basically the way it works is that the, the the virus is looks like a it looks like a ball with lots of spikes and uh, the spikes have uh, different codes protein codes and so they mutate by changing those codes a little bit and so then our our own immune system it sort of it sort of says okay I'm seeing a virus and I recognize a code uh, that you know I've seen before whereas depending on how much those codes change that our immune system might say, we don't recognize this one. And so that's what's really happening now is that, uh, that this BA5 has some coding on it that, that our immune system doesn't seem to uh, recognize as easily. And so, so that's why we're sort of seeing uh, an increase in spread. Many, well, I was going to say many months ago, many years ago now, a couple of years ago, I, for the life of me, can't remember who the expert was we had on the show. But one of the explanations was that with, with any virus that starts out as it morphs and changes, doing the exact thing you just talked about, where it's trying to stay alive and stay relevant, but generally they become weaker and weaker. They, they break down from their initial most powerful form mm. and they eventually sort of become less relevant or less egregious, less aggressive. This doesn't, I mean, it's not the same. We're not seeing the same number of people in ICU, for example, but it doesn't seem like we're seeing it going away. It's not breaking down to the point where we're able, our bodies are able to get rid of it altogether. Yeah, 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 I agree. Uh, you know, like the peak, we had the peak back in January and, and the numbers that we're seeing at the moment are you know quite substantially lower than what we did see back then but 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 you're you're correct you know the the you know the the purpose you know from the virus's perspective it wants to infect as many people as possible but doesn't want to make them too sick because if it makes them too sick they might die off and so, so it wants to make people <laughs> sort of sick enough that but not too sick uh, and that's what we sort of you know that's when we get into that sort of endemic phase uh, and so so I suppose what we're seeing now is that 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 sort of movement from the the full blown pandemic into the endemic phase, where it's just circulating within the community, is just really getting dragged out because of these these uh, subvariants uh, are just in you know uh, sort of based on the level of immunity that people have, uh, and also these variants and and the, the these uh, these changes in codes that that are allowing them to sort of for some people, you know, there's sufficient immunity to 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 deal with them, and for others, they're not. And so, so that's why I think you know we've we've got that aspect, but we're also, at, you know, overall, we're also in a stage where the prevention measures that we had in place are really reduced, while we've also got the the level of of people out there and connecting and and what we say what we call out of home mobility. What means basically you're getting out and about. And connect, you know, and, and interacting with lots of people, that's really ramped up. And so, so you've got these these sort of these factors that are converging right now to say, well, we're going to, you know, it's, we're seeing a, 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 I wouldn't want to say a surge, but we're seeing an increase in numbers. And the question is, you know, is that increase going to sort of just bubble along, or will it really start to take off? And and I think at this stage, 
uh, if it's if we stick with the this, this BA5 variant subvariant stays, then it's probably just going to keep bubbling along. But but you know if there's one of these other ones, the the one you described, you know in some countries that one has really rocketed off and and has really caused a lot more problems. So so yeah, at this stage, you know what I'd say is that we've got to still remain cautious uh, and and you know for people if they don't have their third dose. Uh, uh, you know, the first booster, they should really get it. If, if you're in the age category that you can get your fourth or, or second booster, you know, go and get that as well as, uh, you know, when you're out and about and you're, you're in, in public spaces and particularly on transit and in enclosed spaces, you know, you know, really please wear a mask. And, you know, and that, that, those sorts of things are things that you can do uh, because, you know, the, the broader uh, sort of, imposed uh, prevention measures aren't aren't really being imposed anymore so so it's really up to you to as an individual to try and protect yourself as much as possible and and there there's some things that i'd encourage everyone to keep doing thomas Tenkate, professor at the school of occupational and public health at toronto metropolitan university uh, very much appreciated thank you for this today okay thanks scott you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Leafs acquiring Matt Murray in a trade from Ottawa. That's um, that's all the oxygen in the room, for better or for worse. Leaf fans, not, not, if you go online, not exactly doing their usual planning the parade route after, after that acquisition and the appearance that Jack Campbell is going to be going tomorrow, by the way, the first day of free agency everyone thinking Jack Campbell is going to be going to the Edmonton Oilers fan favorite. Of course, again, much like Zach Hyman did. Anyway, the NHL world is about to get very expensive. Again, a lot of big name players on the market. A lot of money will be splashed around and a lot of Leaf fans will be chewing their fingernails down to the nub as they watch what is going on. It is just another day in July, in other words. Uh, Stephen Ellis is web editor for the Hockey News. He joins us now. Stephen, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, I'm not going to be in the uh, Leaf fan boat here where they're already, I don't know if you heard in the last few minutes, apparently, uh, Caledonia's Cam Talbot just got traded from from Minnesota to Ottawa to replace Matt Murray, and Leaf fans are already losing their minds that the Leafs got played, and look at how much better Ottawa is. Uh, This is just sort of par for the the course around here, isn't it? Kind of feels that way. Uh, I know for for Ottawa, they're they're looking at this and saying what a huge win this is. They traded away a goalie that costs more than Matt Murray, and uh, they bring the band Cam Talbot, who's a pretty solid goalie. They didn't have to give up much to get rid of him, and they got rid of the contract that was Matt Murray, and that's something where the Leafs are... Luckily, they don't have the full contract to deal with there, but, oh, man, uh, you got to hope they're doing something else in the net there. You would think, because, again, it's it's free agency time, but that's not even what Leaf fans are losing their minds about. It's just, well, it's, you know... I, I guess it's predictable after you've not won a playoff series since 1842 that uh, eventually, you know, fans are going to be upset with every little thing. But here's the thing is, is unrestricted free agency or restrict uh, free agency begins tomorrow. The list, there are always good players who are available, but boy, the big names that are available this year that could make tomorrow 
really intriguing. Evgeny Malkin, P.K. Subban, who I completely forgot was even out there at this point. Um, <laughs> Patrick Laine, Matthew Kachuk, Johnny Gaudreau, uh, on and on, Max Domi, if you if you still think there's something there. I mean, so many names. Ryan Strom, and, and it, this is an unbelievable year for teams that want to spend the money if they have it. For sure, and uh, everything pretty much other than goaltending. Uh, when you're going out there and Giroux, you got um, there's even some good restrictor free agents you could throw a, an opportunity at if you if you want to do an offer sheet. Guys like Kachuk and things like that, a little bit more risky, obviously. But yeah, this is a good year for for UFAs, and it's it's kind of exciting time where there's there's good depth options, there's good high end options, and there's a lot of teams right above the right near the cap, which does make it a bit more interesting. So we might see a lot of the same teams kind of fighting for the same few players. But I think this is something where I love free agency compared to trade deadline because these players need to play somewhere next year as opposed to players don't need to be traded. So I think that's what kind of makes this free agency so much fun. And with the list of really good players, or I'll even not even say really good players, although most of them are, but big name players, if nothing else, uh, you, you, if you're a patient general manager, you may land somebody with a big name and maybe some games still in the tank for a lot less than you normally would have just because of the volume. Absolutely. They're looking at that and uh, a couple of names that are kind of like good value picks. There are guys like Evan Rodriguez, who a uh, 28 year old guy in Pittsburgh had 43 points this year. A lot of it was playing with guys like Crosby and Malkin. So uh, numbers may be inflated, but I think teams know that and aren't going to give them a ton of money. Uh, Paul Stastny, another guy who had a 45 point season, but he's 36. How many more good years does he have? So I think uh, after signing a $3.7 million deal last year, I feel like, He's another good value player. Uh, Tyler Ennis, another guy I think could be running around there. Um, Nick Cousins, like that. So this year there's a lot of good depth guys that can make this good. And uh, heck, the Leafs, would they take a look at Phil Kessel if he's cheap? And the Leafs have the cap space to make that work. <laughs> that would be – there are a few guys here. Let's talk about the Leafs for a minute because there's a few guys here that, boy um, – you wonder, and, and and like again, the name because of his connection to Hamilton, he played for the Bulldogs years ago, and he has a big name still. But you, know, you look at someone like PK Subban, made nine million bucks last year. He's going to make nowhere near that much now. But if you could get him on an absolute bargain basement, I'll come here and try and resuscitate my career, and then make a big payday next year. Would you look at a guy like a PK Subban, or do you say? You know, the last thing we need is another big name guy. We just got to fill the holes with the smaller guys. It's intriguing, though. Yeah, like I, I did say, actually, for the first time in a while, I'm kind of confident in what Toronto's defense core looks like because you're hoping that guys like Lilgren and Rasmus Andean take big steps next year. Obviously, got Mark Giordano for almost nothing. Uh, and then they could still bring Labushkin back. So they've already got six defensemen signed. Uh, I, I, they still have to sign uh, Sandine, who is a restricted free agent. And I don't think they're going to kind of splurge there. But since Subban in general is a guy where. Uh, I think a lot of teams are still going to look at him and say, you know what, at $2 million, just under $2 million, which I, I feel like he's not going to go for a lot, he might be worth the, the value bet there because you know, he did not play to the $9 million salary, but did he play closer to $2.5, 3000000 million? I'd say so. So uh, in the right situation, I think it would work out. And another guy to watch out for is uh, Dan Chara. He doesn't end up retiring. I thought that was the guy mm. that I was convinced was going to go to Leeds as like a seventh defenseman for the playoffs. Um, would he go to a contender where he doesn't have to play every night but still have a shot of the Stanley Cup? I feel like he might try to do that. Really interesting. Now, th- again, social media is kind of the last place where you want to take take much from because it is, uh, it's where everybody goes to scream or lose their minds. But 
there's a lot of people already saying, look at what the Ottawa Senators have done. They could be ahead of the Leafs this year. Now, I'm, I'm not going down that road, but you know, there have been, depending on what Ottawa does tomorrow, if they do anything, the Battle of Ontario may be relevant again this year, if way more than it has been pretty much since Gary Roberts and Joe Newendike were around. Absolutely. When, when you're looking at kind of like what uh, what the Senators could do out there, where they got odds from Enton, they got Eric Branstrom, uh, Josh Norris being the, the key RFAs, they're all good players, but they're not kind of at the part where they're going to be making huge bucks yet. And they got $22 million in cap space, so they can go out there and do something. They've got one of the best goalies they've had in a long time now in, in Cam Talbot. Uh, you got to hope that he, he can kind of hold on. And, and Tom Forsberg is a pretty solid uh, backup goalie. So I think the, the battle, of, uh, battle of Ontario is going to be as good as we've seen in a long time. I think Ottawa is trying to say we believe we could be a playoff team. And they might be. They might squeeze it at the end. I don't think they're there yet. They're still going to have to make some moves. But if they all go out and get a guy like Giroux or even a guy like Giordano, or uh, not Giordano, um, uh, Gujo, all of a sudden, everything kind of changes. So uh, this is a team that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, and there are guys. I mean, you know, could you imagine Evgeny Malkin in Ottawa? I, I couldn't, but, I mean, who knows what might happen. You throw enough money at somebody for whatever, and uh, that's all tomorrow. It is uh, free agency opens tomorrow. Everyone can watch that and watch general managers and owners lose their minds and give away millions of dollars to, you know, I, we all, you and I, Stephen, you and I both should have been hockey players instead of talking about <laughs> it. We Way better. Uh, Stephen Ellis, web editor for the Hockey News. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. And if any NHL teams want to offer me millions of dollars, I am available. <laughs> I'll play for minimum. I really will. I'll come in for the 800000 or whatever it is and play a year for you, whatever position you want. No problem. Uh, Steven, thanks for this. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is the time we have, unfortunately. I wish we could keep going, but uh, we are out. We can always come back tomorrow at 3, though, which we're going to do. Uh, Thank you to Will for keeping us on the air and other Will for lining up all the guests and doing all the heavy lifting today. Uh, Thank you to those guests. Thank you to you for listening. We always do appreciate it. As I say, we'll be back at uh, at 3 o'clock tomorrow. Don't tune in at 6. We'll be done. Tune in at 3 tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Have yourself a great night. And boom goes the dynamite.